continue with our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. We are still in the fourth chapter, and this evening I'll begin reading at verse 13 and read through verse 23. And if time permits, I will begin the fifth chapter, though I doubt that time will be so generous. So at this point, I'd ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed so that He became the Father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, He did not consider His own body already dead, since He was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what He had promised, He was also able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to Him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for His sake alone that it was imputed to Him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in Him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. The marvelous Word of God for God's people. Please be seated. Let us pray. Again, our Father, we come to this portion of Your Holy Word in a spirit of sheer delight, for the news it proclaims is indeed the best of all possible news, not merely for what it speaks of Abraham, but rather for what it speaks to us who are His children in faith. Again, we ask that You would grant to us complete measure of understanding of these wonderful things, 
as we examine the text again this night. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was said of one of the great Christian apologists of the 20th century who was so brilliant that he was in a class by himself that whenever he was engaged in debate, that not only were his arguments so acute and so compelling that he virtually annihilated his opponent in such debate, but that when he was finished, he dusted off the spot where his opponent had stood. And I think of that when I follow the progress here of Paul's argument in Romans 3 and 4 when he sets forth so clearly the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's as if the uh, apostle is so caught up in the magnificence of this doctrine that he becomes almost transported mystically by the Holy Spirit because he simply can't move away from this doctrine. He labors the point for which I am so grateful because I think he realized that it took this kind of labor, this kind of persisting in the doctrine so that no Christian would ever miss the force of it. Sadly, we have to say in light of church history, perhaps the apostle didn't labor it enough, because in every generation there are those who stand up and oppose this essential truth of the gospel. Well, as we saw in weeks past, Paul appealed to Abraham as his exhibit A to prove the point that in every economy of divine redemption, there's only one way of salvation, and that is through that justification that is by faith. And in our last session, we looked at how the Apostle Paul reached back again to the life of Abraham and argued the point that Abraham, before he had done any of the works of the law, before he had offered Isaac on the altar, before he was even circumcised, as early as Genesis 15, when Abraham believed the promise of God, God counted him righteous in his sight. And so now the apostle continues to press home this example of Abraham by saying in verse 13, for the promise that he, that is Abraham, would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. Now, let's stop there at that comma where the apostle hesitates just for a second to remind us that Abraham and his seed together are the heirs of God. Later, the apostle will say, those who are of Abraham and of his seed are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Actually, in terms of 
principal, the only proper heir of God the Father is God the Son. God the Son alone is worthy to inherit the kingdom that His Father has promised. But through the gift of faith and through that righteousness that is by faith, those who are adopted into the family of God become His heirs along with His only begotten Son. Now, later on in this epistle, Paul will give more details about what it means to be an heir of God, but he introduces the concept here for us and reminds us that the heirs of Abraham and his seed do not receive the inheritance that is promised to them through the law, but rather through faith. And here's what he says. For those who are of the law, for if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. Now, what's Paul getting at here? He says, if in fact the way in which one receives the kingdom of God is through the law, then that would vitiate the primary and central importance of faith. If there's a way to receive these gifts of God apart from faith, that is through your works and through your uh, striving and attempt at merit, then you would in effect empty the meaning and the significance of that faith which is indeed the alone uh, instrumental cause of your justification. And then he goes on to argue the point further when he says that the promise of God to Abraham and to his seed would be made of no effect. If it's not of faith, if it's of the law, God's promises are empty and worthless. Why does he say that? Why does he come to such a grim conclusion if people confuse the ground of justification and think that it comes through the works of the law rather than through faith alone? Well, he answers that question for us. He says, because the law brings about wrath. What the law affects, what the law brings to pass is not salvation. It's not justification. It's not forgiveness, but the wrath of God. That's what we get from the law. And so if you're going to put your confidence in the law, the only thing that you can hope to gain by it is the wrath of God. Again, if you seek to base your salvation on your merit, as I've said before, The only thing you've ever been able to merit before God is His wrath because of sin. Now, he goes on to say further why this is. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. And what does he mean by that? Well, if God 
doesn't set any standards, if He makes no requirements, if He imposes no obligations upon us, then we would be autonomous. We would be free to do whatever we wanted to do. As Dostoevsky said, if there is no God, all things are permissible. You live in a society of lawlessness. You live in a society that seeks to banish the very concept of sin from human consciousness. But in order to do that, we must first banish God from the equation. The Westminster Divines, in setting forth the Shorter Catechism, many of our young people are studying right now, have set for us a simple definition of sin. The question in the Catechism begins, what is sin? Who knows the answer to that? Uriah, could you answer that? What is sin? Do you know? Yes, you do. (laughs) Doesn't he, Patrick? What? You know it. I know. But hasn't he learned that? Tabitha? Tabitha? Honey, do you know what the answer is? Does anybody know the answer? Besides somebody with a beard? (laughs) Do you know? What? It's a transgression. Well, that's close because that's part of it. But let's get… You don't have a beard. Go ahead. What? Go ahead, Alan. Did you hear that? Sin is any want of conformity thereunto or transgression of the law of God. Now, that gets it succinctly, doesn't it? Because there are two aspects of that definition. Tom, you know it, didn't you? Sin is any want of conformity. Now, that's somewhat archaic language. It means that want of conformity means a lack of conformity to the law of God. So, if God imposes a law or a rule for our behavior, saying, thou shalt do this or thou shalt not do that, if I fail to conform to that law, if I disobey that commandment, then I am failing to conform to His standard of righteousness. In one sense, this failure to conform or want of conformity or lack of conformity in some respects calls attention, but not always, but sometimes to what we call sins of omission, our failure to do those things that we ought to have done, that God commands us to do. If we don't do what He commands us to do, we have failed to conform to His law. But it's not just that negative failure or omission, but there are also sins of commission, where in the second part of that shorter catechism definition, as Alan has given us, is that not only want of conformity thereunto, but transgression of the law 
of God. What's a transgression? You know, when we recite the Lord's Prayer, which shouldn't be recited, it should be prayed, but if we pray the Lord's Prayer, sometimes we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, but other times we hear that uh, prayer uh, articulated by the phrase, uh, forgive us our trespasses as those, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, you've all seen signs in certain places that say, no trespassing. That means there's a border over which you're not allowed to step because if you do, you're liable to some kind of prosecution because you have violated the law that prohibits you from stepping across that boundary where God has also established boundaries by the law. And when we transgress, we trespass, we step over the line and break His law, which as soon as we do that, exposes us justly to His wrath to His punitive wrath, not merely the corrective wrath that He gives to those children whom He loves and whom He has forgiven. We still experience that correction from His discipline, but His punitive wrath is when His judgment falls upon impenitent sinners who have failed to conform to His law or transgressed against His law. Now, again, this is one of those points that Paul in the fifth chapter will also labor a little more fully, and it's one that needs to be labored because, again, we live in such a spirit of lawlessness in our culture today that even Christians don't spend much time thinking about the law of God and sometimes even think that it's somehow beneath the dignity of God's love or His goodness, that He even has laws. But He is the one who's made us, and He is the one who rules us, and He is the one who is sovereign over us, and there's nothing more perfectly rational than a just and holy God should declare what is His will, His preceptive will of His creatures. There's nothing at all unjust or irrational about such a God imposing standards and obligations upon His creatures. Now, we, that's what we learn in the law what God requires of us, what He commands of us. Now, if He never gave any law, then there wouldn't be any transgression. Without the law, there's no sin. That's what the apostle's saying here. No law, do what you want. However, dear friends, there is a law. And God's law manifestly reveals our sin. It's the law of God that demonstrates 
are falling short of His glory, the manifold ways in which we transgress against Him. Now, keep this in mind also, that when you break the law of God, which you do, and I do, have done, continue to do, the problem with that is not simply that we have violated some moral abstract standard that we call law. Because the law of God, dearly beloved, is not an impersonal matter. It's a personal matter. Because when we sin, we don't just sin against some abstract norm, some piece of legislation. When we sin, we sin against the one whose law it is. We do violence to Him, to the author of our very life. That's why sin is such an egregious matter to His sight. And if we would seek to find our salvation through the law, we're on a fool's errand because the only consequence of that law for us is that it exposes us to His wrath. So, I beg you to banish from your minds forever any thought of justifying yourself before a holy God by your behavior, by your good deeds, by your merits, or by your work. Just as Dante posted above the entrance to hell the words, abandon hope all ye who enter here. One of those rare contributions of the Italians to world <laughs> literature. <laughs> I couldn't resist that. And so we should abandon all hope of entering the kingdom of God by virtue of our obedience to the law. Again, Paul's not finished with this, as he will pick it up again later. The law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the apostle concludes, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise may be sure to all the seed. Now, this is a complicated uh, sentence here. But first of all, he says, therefore it is of faith that it may be according to grace. I don't have a bulletin with me here from this morning's service. You might have one stuffed away in your Bible and all of that. But if you notice on the cover of our bulletin each Sunday morning, we have the image of the cross and of the Celtic cross, and then around it, we have the solas of the Reformation, including the words sola fide, sola gratia, and solus Christus. And that captures the essence of this doctrine of justification as the Reformers recovered it after it was obscured in the Middle Ages, that our justification is by grace 
through faith because of Christ. Therefore, the three solas, by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. And so Paul here emphasizes this when he says, therefore it, that is our justification, is of faith. Now we have a purpose clause, something that gives us a reason. Why is it by faith? That it might be according to grace. See, when we really grasp this doctrine of justification by faith alone, what we grasp with it is the sole graciousness of our redemption. When Luther wrote his book on the bondage of the will in response to the diatribe of Erasmus of Rotterdam, in that work, which I believe was Luther's most important work, he argued against the great humanist scholar Erasmus that the real issue lying underneath the surface of the debate over justification was not sola fide, but it was sola gratia, that our salvation is by grace and by grace alone. And so Paul says, it is by faith in order that it might be by grace. To what end? So that the promise might be sure to all the seed. We're told not to be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, to not be double-minded people, vacillating as one being blown in the wind, leaning this way, then that way, never coming to a point of conviction, never coming to a place of assurance of salvation. I remember when I was a seminary student, one of my classmates took a poll of all of the students in my class in the seminary and asked them the simple question, do you know for sure that you are saved? And of course, that question was probing what we call the doctrine of the assurance of salvation. And the vast majority, probably less than all but less than five of the students in that class, answered that question in the negative by saying, no, they were not sure. But what was most significant in the poll was they believed that it was a matter of arrogance to be sure. That as they took the position and held the opinion that there was something wrong with people who thought they could know for sure that they were in a state of grace and that they were in a state of salvation. Isn't that amazing? When the New Testament gives us the exhortation to make our election sure, 
that we are called not to vacillate, not to waver in our confidence, but to be sure of our status before God, to be sure of our receiving the promises of God. Now, again, Paul sets his sights once more on Abraham because he's talking about a faith that is through grace for the purpose that we might be sure of the promise. Now, let's look at it from the backside for a second. Suppose your justification, suppose your salvation depended on your obedience to the law of God. How sure would you be of your salvation? Even more importantly is the question, how sure could you be of your salvation? If you had to look at the law of God, then look at your own life, honestly, any assurance that you ever scraped a hold of would be demolished in an instance. That's why Agricola in the 16th century said, to the gallows with Moses, because every time he looked at the law, he saw his own unrighteousness, and he lost hope because he had no assurance. And if justification were according to law, you would have no certainty whatsoever. But the apostle says that our justification is by faith, that it might be of grace, so that all of the seed of Abraham, Abraham and all of those who come after him who follow in his way, may be sure. Sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Abraham, as Paul again is saying, is not simply the father of Isaac, not only the father of the progeny of Isaac, he's not only the father of the Jews, but he's the father of the Gentiles who trust in the same promise that he embraced by which he was counted righteous before God. So again, Paul labors that we are the seed of Abraham, not just the Jews, and that we are the seed of Abraham by faith and not by the law. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and cause all those things which do not exist as those that did, as though they did, who contrary to hope or against all hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Now there is a gold mine in that lengthy sentence I just read to you. There's so much in there that we could spend just a couple of weeks merely concentrating 
on that last uh, verse. First, let me start off by saying to remind you that when we talk about the faith that justifies, we have to remember that that faith has content to it. There's information that must be understood. We call that, historically, the data or the indicia, the information that we believe, and we must believe it in the sense of intellectual assent or what the Reformers called a census. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, you know, you've heard of George Washington, that he's the first president of the United States. Do you believe in George Washington? Well, you know who I'm talking about when I'm talking about George Washington. I said, do you believe in him? I'm asking you, do you have intellectual confidence that the, that the proposition George Washington was the first president of the United States is a true proposition? You say, yes, I believe that. I agree that that's true. But both of those elements, which are necessary elements to saving faith, together do not make up saving faith. I told you before that the critical element of saving faith is what's called fiducia, personal trust. Nobody's putting their personal trust for their redemption in George Washington, I hope. So certainly, when you talk about how you're justified by faith, you're not justified by faith in George Washington. You're justified by faith by trusting in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation. And that's the nature of the faith of Abraham. He didn't just believe in God. I know you folks from St. Andrews are sick of hearing me say this, but I say anybody can believe in God. Satan believes in God. The demons believe in God and tremble. But what faith is all about is believing God, putting your trust for your life and for your death in Him, living by trusting His promises even when you can't even see the fulfillment of those promises. Now, sometimes people get this all mixed up, and they think that what saving faith is, is a leap into the dark. How many times have you heard that when you talk to people and they say, well, I, that doesn't make sense to me, and, and I don't think that those propositions are uh, sound ones? Well, and you say, well, just, you know, close your eyes, take a deep breath, make a leap of faith. Jump into the darkness and pray that Jesus will be there catching you. And I've said before, Jesus never calls people to jump into the darkness. He calls them to jump out of the darkness. He never asks you to crucify your intellect to become a Christian. That faith is not believing the absurd. Faith is not believing the foolish. Faith is ultimately trusting what is preeminently trustworthy. Now, there is tension there when it comes to staking your life on God. And here's what Paul says about Abraham in those circumstances. He said, I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead, calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Again, I'll come back to that 
but in this phrase, who, contrary to hope or against all hope, in hope he believed. Now, that would seem to give some credence to this idea that true faith is faith that is believes against the evidence, that believes against all reason. Because here's Abraham, who against all hope, hoped. Was that a leap of faith? Or did he have a reason for it? Against all earthly indicators, against all signs that his humanity would say, and he said, his own body, Paul says, was for all intents and purposes dead. He was 100 years old. His wife was barren. But God said, Sarah will have a child, and Eliezer of Damascus will not be your heir, but one from your own loins will be your heir. He looked at himself. He looked at his wife. This is a hopeless situation. How can I possibly believe that promise? Then he looked at the one who made the promise and realized instantly there wasn't anything hopeless about it. The only thing hopeless was that the promise would not come to pass because it is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for God to break a promise. But what we do in our sin, beloved, is that we project to the character of God our own character. We break promises, and we live in the midst of people who break promises routinely. And so we say, we're so accustomed to broken promises, how can we trust this one who promises us against all earthly evidence of things that could possibly happen? How could Mary believe the announcement of the angel Gabriel when she said she would bring forth this child? And she said, how can this be since I know not a man? Gabriel said, Mary, we're not talking about the power of men here. We're talking about the author of the universe. We're talking about the author of life. With him, all things in this world are possible. Mary said, yes, be it so unto me according to your word. Now, the key to this is in that phrase that I sort of sloughed over, and I said I'd go back to, and let's look at it again. That Abraham believed in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. For those of you who were in church this morning, I made a passing reference to the power of Satan to 
perform miracles, if you recall. I took the position very vocally that Satan has never performed a miracle in his life. He doesn't have the power to perform miracles. All of his attempts at miracles are frauds and counterfeits because he does not have the power that God alone possesses. And here is where this text applies. The one whom Abraham believes is the God who can create ex nihilo, who can bring something out of nothing, and who can bring life out of death. Satan could have gone to the tomb of Lazarus and cried to Lazarus to come forth until he lost his voice. Not a grain of life would have stirred in that corpse because Satan does not have the power to bring life out of death. Satan could speak into the void, and with all of his energy say, let there be light. Not a candle watt of light would appear because he can't bring something out of nothing. You see, Abraham was dealing with God. And the God he was dealing with could look at Abraham's aged, frail, decrepit body and his wife's barren womb and say, let there be. And Abraham said, yes, there will be, because he put his trust in the promise of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. Your only hope in life and death is trusting in the Word of God. There is nothing else to trust in. Everything that this world offers passes away. Your eternal life rests in the hands, in the will, and in the power of God. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what He had promised, He was also able to perform. Do you know, I've told this story before. I knew a man for a very short period of time. When Vest and I had our second teaching appointment in Boston, Christian College, and we visited the campus before we moved there, and we asked about finding a realtor who would help us secure a home to buy. And this woman who was connected to the college was a real estate agent, and so she took us around the area of Hamilton, Massachusetts, looking for a place to live. At the end of the day, we came back to her house, 
and it was during the NBA playoffs in the heyday of the Boston Celtics, and I met her husband, who was sitting on the couch watching the Celtic game. He had all kinds of bottles of medicine in front of him. He said he hadn't been feeling very well. He's going to go see the doctor. He thought maybe he had a problem uh, with his uh, gallbladder. And I talked to him that evening, watched the game with him. First time I ever saw him in my life. And then we returned back to Pennsylvania for a few weeks before we would come to Boston to move. Well, while we were back in Pennsylvania, I got the word that uh, my friend that I'd met that night was diagnosed with uh, cancer of the pancreas and that his condition was terminal. And I don't know why, but God gave me such an enormous burden for that man that there was not a night went by, even before we moved to Boston, that I didn't wrestle with God for that man's life. And after we moved to Boston, I went every day to Boston General, Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, and visited this man who was named Deke, short for Deacon. And the only thing I could do for him was read the Bible, put ice on his lips. I was with him there the day he died. But I'd go in there even when he couldn't talk anymore, and he'd just point at the Bible. And I would read to him from Hebrews, where the Word of God said, Because God could promise by nothing greater, he swore by himself. And to his last breath, that man trusted the promises of God. And I saw a valiant death of a Christian who believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham did not waver. His faith was strengthened. He gave glory to God, became fully convinced that what God promised he was able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul concludes this section by saying it wasn't written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. This is why Paul's rehearsing this history of Abraham. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised for our justification. Now my time is gone. And we come to one of the most critical affirmations of this passage that I've read tonight, and I'm just going to have to wait till the next time to pick it up. And I, because I want to unpack a little bit about what the apostle means when he says that Jesus was raised for our justification. You see, our justification rests not only on the perfect obedience of Jesus, not only on the atonement of Jesus, but on the resurrection of Christ. But it is, it is His work through and through from beginning to end, and it's to that we are to put 
our trust as Father Abraham did. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this example of an old man, feeble old man, a hopeless old man who against hope trusted in hope because he trusted in your promise that not only you could do what you promise, but that you most surely would do what you promise. Thank you, O Lord, for the riches of the promises you give to us in Christ. Amen.